Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26 is where we are. We are continuing the series that we've been in for a few weeks now through the life of David. And today we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 26. If you were here with us last week, you know that Matthew taught. And uh, Matthew covered a whole lot of material in his message. But kind of the main thrust of Matthew's message was all about dealing with difficult circumstances, particularly dealing with difficult people in our lives. Uh, Last week, we looked at the sufferings that David experienced at the hands of the ungodly King Saul, and Matthew used as an opportunity to talk about some of the sufferings that we may experience at the hands of ungodly people in our own lives. And when you think about it, kind of the the theme of the last couple of weeks has been difficult circumstances. We also talked about that uh, two weeks ago when we talked about David and Goliath. And the reason I point that out to you is because in many ways, that's going to be the theme of this message as well. We're going to continue this idea of dealing with uh, difficult circumstances. But today, we're going to look at a particular subset of difficult circumstances, and that is unfair situations. Particularly, what we're going to look at is what do we do when something happens to us that we don't think we deserve? When we're not treated in a way we think we deserve, or maybe we don't get something that we think we deserve. Uh, As I was preparing for this message, I was thinking back to the tail end of my junior year of college. And when I was in college, I was in a fraternity. And so uh, my junior year of college, I had been on what was called the Inner Fraternity Council. It was the the council that kind of oversees all the fraternities. And I decided for my senior year that I wanted to be president of the Inner Fraternity Council. And so I ran for the position of president, and uh, there were two of us running, and I thought, if I can say it, I thought of the two of us running, I was the most qualified, I was the most deserving of the position of president. But the outgoing president on the Interfraternity Council, for what I thought were very unfair reasons, he didn't like me. And so when he put forward what was called the slate, which was his recommendations of who should be officers, who should be president, uh, he did not put my name down, he put the other guy's name down. And I realized at that point I had a choice. I could either challenge uh, this other guy or I could stand down, and I ended up standing down. And so my senior year of college, I was not the president of the Inner Fraternity Council. Don't you all feel sad for me? Uh, Yes, it is is very much a first world problem, and and I definitely realized that. However, at the time, it was really frustrating. Because here I was being treated in a way that I didn't think I deserved to be treated, and that was keeping me from something that I really thought I I deserved to get. And I I can imagine that many of you can probably sympathize with me in that. Maybe you're going through an experience like that right now. Maybe it's something at your work right now. Maybe you're not being treated at your work the way you think you deserve to be treated. Maybe you're not being paid what you think you deserve to be paid. Maybe recently you were passed over for a promotion or a key client or a key territory was given to someone else that you really believe is less qualified than you for very unfair reasons and and you're frustrated as a result of it. Maybe some of you are frustrated right now because you're not married and you think you deserve to be. Maybe one of the reasons why you're not married is because you have what you believe are high but ultimately biblical standards. For example, you will not date someone from a, that is a non-Christian who isn't a follower of Jesus. Some of your friends, however, don't have those same standards. They're getting married. You're not married, and, and you don't think that's fair. You, you don't think they deserve to be married, and, and you do. Maybe it's something with your kids. Uh, we experience this a lot with our kids, right? Your, your daughter is the best player on her soccer team. Your son has the best voice 
in the choir in his high school, but for political reasons, for unfair reasons, your daughter is not getting the playing time you think she deserves. Your, your son didn't get the, the solo in the upcoming uh, concert, and it's frustrating. Or maybe your son or daughter is a senior in high school, and they're just hearing back from their colleges, and, and they didn't get into their top choices, and you really think they deserve to, and it's, it's frustrating. It's especially frustrating when it happens to our kids, Right? And so how do, we, how do we handle these circumstances? How do we deal with these circumstances? Well, that's what we're going to seek to learn as we look at another incident in the life of David. To, today, if you want to talk about someone that doesn't deserve what, what, what he is getting in life, it, it is David at this season in this particular, his particular life. Uh, as, as we have been seeing, David is a very unique individual, right? He is a man after God's own heart. He is trying to live his life according to the will of God. But rather than experience the blessings that we would think that would come with that, David is experiencing nothing but hardship. At this current season in his life, he's being hunted like a dog by this deranged King Saul who is out to kill him, is out to get rid of him. I mean, David doesn't deserve to be treated in the way that he is being treated. And it's that knowledge that I think makes our passage today so interesting. Because today, we're going to see David be given a golden opportunity to finally get what he deserves, to be treated in the way that he deserves to be treated. And we're going to see what David does with that opportunity. We're going to see why David does what he does. And from that, we're going to learn something about our own circumstances in life. So 1 Samuel 26 is where we are. Let me read the first several verses here, and then we'll pause and see what's going on. Verse 1. It says, The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding out on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the, uh, on the hill of Hakalah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Job's brother. There's a lot of tough words in this passage. Who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. Stop right there. So a lot of kind of difficult words in this passage. What is going on? It's actually really simple, okay? As this passage opens up, it's a lot like a lot of the stories that we looked at last week. Once again, David is on the run. Once again, David is being hunted. As this particular story opens up, we're told that David is hanging out near the region of this particular desert in Israel. It's called the Desert of Ziph. And as he's there, the inhabitants of the region, they're known as the Ziphites, which to me kind of sound like a character from a Dr. Seuss book, the Ziphites. The Ziphites, they go to King Saul and they say, hey, Saul, uh, David is his hanging out near our region. And Saul hears that, and what does he does do? We're told that he gets together 3,000 of his men, 3,000 of the best soldiers in Israel, and they all travel to the desert of Ziph, all with the intent of killing David. But when they get there, something has happened. We don't know the reason why, but for some reason, David is not there. Instead, he, we're told, is in the wilderness. So Saul and his army, they decide to camp in this particular region in the desert of Ziph. And David learns about the fact that Saul is there, and so he decides that he wants to come and see Saul and his army. So he takes together a few of his own men, and they travel to this region. And they see Saul, and they see his army, and we're told that they see them lying down. 
Now, we don't yet know what that means, but we'll read on in just a couple of verses, and what it means is that they're all asleep. Saul and his entire army at this point are asleep. And so David sees that, and he decides that he wants to get a little bit closer to Saul. In fact, he decides that he wants to get into the exact center of the camp where Saul is located. And so he turns to his couple of his men, and he says, who wants to go on an adventure with me? And one of David's men, a man by the name of Abishai, who's actually a nephew of David, he says to David, hey, I want to go. And so the two of them decide to go right into the camp where Saul is. And that's what we saw when we ended in verse 6. Pick it up now, verses 7 and 8. And so, so David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck into the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. And it's verses 7 and 8 right here. This is the real heart of this particular story. This is kind of the drama in this particular story. In fact, it's verses 7 and 8 that set this story apart from practically every other encounter between David and Saul. You see, in every other encounter between David and Saul, Saul, David is always the one who is in the vulnerable position. David is always the one who's being hunted. Saul is always the one who's doing the hunting. In this particular story, however, the tables are turned. As we see, Saul is now the one in a vulnerable position. Saul, we're told, is asleep. His whole army is asleep. And that gives David here a very unique opportunity. That gives David the opportunity to get rid of King Saul once and for all, to have King Saul killed, and not just killed, but killed by Saul's own spear. As we read here, Saul's spear is stuck in the ground near his head, the very spear probably that several times had been thrown at David with the intent of killing David. David can have Saul killed by his own spear. I mean, it's a moment out of Shakespeare, right? It's a very poetic sort of moment. And that is exactly what Abishai suggests that David does. Uh, We saw that in verse 8. Abishai looks at the scene, and he says, David, this scene is too good to be true. In fact, he says, David, this is a God-ordained moment. He says, God has now delivered the enemy into your hands. You say the word, David, and, and I will strike him, and I won't need two attempts. I'll be able to do it on the first try. And so the tables have turned. Here, David has the opportunity to get rid of King Saul. And if David does get rid of King Saul, what does that mean? That means that David himself becomes king. That means that that David gets what he deserves. And so we look at the scene here, and sort of the question that is going through our our mind is, why shouldn't David take advantage of this opportunity? Considering how much evil Saul has done to David, the mistreatment that David has received, why in the world shouldn't David take advantage of this opportunity. Honestly, I think a lot of people in David's situation would. I I think a lot of people looking at this story actually would say that he should. I kind of uh, imagine, in fact, if I were to round up 10 random people off the street who didn't know this story, and I were to tell them the background of this story, I would tell them the the evil that Saul has done to David, and I were to tell them the the opportunity that David has here, and I were to ask him, what do you think David should do in this situation? I anticipate that the majority of people, at least five or six, maybe as many as eight or nine people, would say, absolutely, David should take advantage of this opportunity. And the reason I say that is because this is how many people operate in very similar situations today. You know, we look at this particular incident here and we say, well, there's no way this can be relevant to us, right? This is very unique to David, but I don't believe that. 
I believe the choice that is before David here is actually a choice that many of us have faced in our own life. In fact, some of you are facing this choice right now because when you sort of strip all the details away, at the heart of what's going on here is the choice that is facing David is this. We'll put it on the screen. The choice that is facing David is, should we be underhanded to get for ourselves what we think we deserve? That's really the dilemma facing David. Should he be underhanded to get for himself what he thinks he deserves? David doesn't deserve to be treated this way. David deserves to be king. Here he has an opportunity to take that. Here he has an opportunity to grab for himself what he deserves. The only problem is it would require him to be underhanded. In this case, he would have to condone murder, right? And so the question before David is, should he be underhanded to get for himself what he thinks he deserves? And this is a question, as I said, that many people in the world face today. And many people, when they face this sort of question, the answer they give to it is yes. Absolutely, we should do whatever it takes, even if it's underhanded, to get what we think we deserve. You're not getting paid what you think you should get paid at your job. You know other people who are not working as hard as you do, who get paid as much or even more than you do. So so what do you do in that situation? What do many people do? They take it, right? Some literally, some embezzle, some steal from their companies. Other people, most people do it a little bit more passive-aggressively. Well, listen, if I'm not getting paid what I think I deserve, well, then I'm just not going to be as good of an employee. I'm going to start arriving late. I'm going to start leaving early. I'm going to start uh, slacking off in the middle of the day, taking long excursions in the middle of the day. Listen, if I'm not being treated the way I deserve, well, then I'm going to make things right. And they say yes to this question. I don't know if any of you are little league coaches, if any of you uh, coach your kids' teams. My my brother does. If, If you have done that, you have seen parents who answer yes to this question, right? They don't like how you're treating their son or daughter. They don't like how you're coaching them. They don't like the amount of playing time that they're getting. So what do they do? They decide to take for their son or daughter what they think is deserved. And they do that by maybe launching a coup against you, getting the other parents turned against you. They, they write nice, nasty emails to you or to the league, all in an attempt to make life miserable for you, all in an attempt to, to get you removed so that they can get for their kids what they think they deserve all over the place People answer yes to this question. It's their own equivalent of killing King Saul. And there is a word for this type of behavior. And you know what that word is? It's the word entitlement. Entitlement. What is entitlement? Entitlement is the belief that I deserve exactly what I want. Entitlement is the belief that I deserve exactly what I want. And all you have to do is look at the news, all you have to do is look at what's going on in our current political world right now to know that we are living in an age of entitlement. All over the place, people think that they deserve exactly what they want. And if they want it and they deserve it and it's not being given to to them, then they will get it. Through whatever means possible, they will get it. And at the heart of entitlement is the oldest sin that is known to man. And that is the sin of self. That is the sin of creating a world where I am at the center of it. And what is especially interesting to me about our day and age is this sort of self, this sort of self-centeredness, it used to be frowned upon. Nowadays, we celebrate it. We celebrate self. We celebrate selfishness. We celebrate entitlement. Don't believe me? I'll prove it to you. How many of you know what this is right here? 
the selfie stick, right? Or as it's been called before, the narcissist stick. <laughs> Men and women, is there an invention of the last 10 or 15 years that is more indicative of our age of entitlement than this thing right here? I want you to think about this invention just for a second. What is the point of this invention? The point of this invention is to make it possible so that I can be at the center of all, at all times, right? The point of this invention is to make it possible so that I can take a picture of myself. I can have a camera pointed at myself 24-7. I don't need another person to take a picture of myself. I don't even need a mirror to take a picture of myself, right? I can always have a camera focus on me. And why in the world would anybody want the, the ability to have a camera focus on them 24-7? Well, the only reason I can think of is this. I am the most interesting person in the world. <laughs> In fact, I am so interesting that the whole world would benefit from seeing more of me. So I'm going to make this world a better place by taking a picture of myself every day, and I'm going to take a video of myself on the, every day, and I'm going to post it on the internet so that the whole world can see how great I am. I know that may sound like an exaggeration. But you look at the Facebook pages of people, you look at the Instagram pages of people, and I don't see how you can come to any other conclusion. Because all it is is selfies, right? All it is are pictures and videos of self. And listen, if you believe that you are the most interesting person in the world, then guess what? You believe that you deserve whatever you want. And if you want something and it's not being given to you, what are you going to do? You're going to take it. Through whatever means possible, you are going to take it. And as I said, this is the oldest sin known to man. Think of the sin of Adam and Eve. What was the sin of Adam and Eve? In a sense, wasn't it the sin of entitlement? Here's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says that I can't have it, but man, I want it. Maybe I, even I deserve it. And so I don't care what God says. I'm going to take it. Through whatever means possible, I am going to take it. I mean, this is, in a sense, the oldest sin known to man. And it's really interesting. You have the sin of Adam and Eve in your mind, and you read 1 Samuel chapter 26, and you notice something very interesting about this particular passage. You see, two times in this passage, our author wants to make it clear that Saul is located in the exact center of this particular camp that has been set up. Once in verse 5, and again in verse 7, our author tells us that there's Saul and surrounding Saul is the entire army, that he's located in the center of this camp. Now, why, does it, why is that significant? Think back to the Garden of Eden. Where was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Where was it located in the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 2. It was located in the center of the Garden of Eden. Not only that, but 80 times in the book of 1 Samuel, our author uses the Hebrew words for good and evil, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our author uses the Hebrew words for good and evil. Well, guess what? One-third of those references are found in 1 Samuel 24, 25, and this chapter right here. In other words, there is a cluster of references to good and evil in this particular section of 1 Samuel. You put all that together, what some scholars believe is what David is being presented with here is a repeat of the Garden of Eden. This is a text. What God is saying to David here is he's saying, David, how far are you willing to go to grab what you think you deserve? Just like Adam and Eve, are you willing to disobey me? Are you willing to take a step away from me? In this case, are you willing to condone the murder of Saul in order to grab for yourself what you think you deserve? This is a test. And how does David respond to this test? Pick it up again in verse 8, and we'll continue on. 
Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he says, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into the battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them in a deep sleep. This passage right here, this is why I love David. This is what makes David so unique. Because what does David do in response to this text? He doesn't give in to entitlement. He resists those voices that say, David, you deserve it, and so you need to take it. He doesn't do what I think the vast majority of people in David's situation would do. And why does David respond the way that he does here? Well, I want you to think back to my sermon two weeks ago, the sermon of David and Goliath. Why did I say that David was able to believe that Goliath could be defeated when the Israelites ran away in fear? What is it that made David able to believe that Goliath could be defeated? You remember what I said? This is what I said. I said, David brought God into the situation. David brought God into the situation. I have a theory that we're going to test throughout the rest of this series. My theory is that really what makes David a man after God's own heart is David almost always brings God into the situation. He almost never looks at things from a purely human perspective. He almost always looks at things from a godly perspective. And as he takes the perspective of God on this particular situation, what does David remember? What does David remember? He remembers the sovereignty of God, and that's what we see in verse 10. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. David remembers the sovereignty of God. He remembers the complete control, the complete charge that God has over this entire world. And when David remembers the sovereignty of God, what does he realize? He realizes that the reason why Saul is king right now is because God has decided at this moment Saul is to be king. And when God decides that Saul is no longer going to be king, God is perfectly capable of removing Saul from the position of king, and he doesn't need David's underhanded efforts in order to get that accomplished. You see, because David remembers the sovereignty of God, ultimately what he realizes is that he's never entitled to something that he does not have. Because if he were truly entitled to it, God would make sure that he gets it. And so to return to that question we asked earlier, should we be underhanded to get for ourselves what we think we deserve? David's answer is always no. We should never disobey God in order to take for for ourselves what God is not yet willing to give us. And the same is true in our situation. If you were supposed to be boss at your company, if you were supposed to get that client, if your daughter was supposed to get the the lead on the soccer team, if your son was supposed to get the solo in the choir, if your children were supposed to get in their top choice in college, that would have happened. Why? Because God is sovereign, because God is in control, and he is perfectly capable of making all of those things happen. The reason why they didn't happen is because for whatever reason, God has decided that's not his plan right now. That's not his will right now. And we are never entitled to something that we do not have. And let me warn all of us, whenever we forget that, and whenever we decide to take a step away from God in order to grab for ourselves what we think we deserve, just like Adam and Eve, that's when we get into trouble. 
that's when we find ourselves on dangerous ground. So Chris, what are you saying? Are you saying if I'm being mistreated at my job, I can never say anything about it? Are you saying if my kids are being mistreated, I can never do anything about it? Are you saying I can never ask for a promotion or I can never ask for a raise? I'm supposed to be just this punching bag who takes whatever is thrown at me? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely not. Because that's not what David does. Just because David doesn't take the life of King Saul here doesn't mean David doesn't stand up for himself. And it doesn't mean that David doesn't make it clear that he does think he deserves to be better. But when he does that, he does it in a God-honoring way. And that's what we see as we continue on in this passage. Eventually, David is given the opportunity to address King Saul directly. It's actually their last conversation in Scripture. And I find this conversation so instructive. Pick it up in verse 17 now of this passage. David wakes up Saul, and it says this. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. In other words, if the reason this is happening is because I truly do deserve this, then may God have mercy on me. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge, as one hunts a bird in the mountains. Saul, it's useless to hunt me. It's like hunting a bird. I'm not going to harm you. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I've acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. And what do we see here? David does stand up for himself. In fact, he doesn't say those words directly, but we can almost hear the words. Saul, I I don't deserve this. Okay, I deserve to be treated better than I'm being treated right now. So David absolutely stands up for himself. But, But notice what David does as he does that. Two things stand out for me. First of all, David talks to Saul directly. He doesn't complain to one of Saul's soldiers about Saul. He doesn't complain to Abishai about Saul. He addresses Saul directly. And then second, he is absolutely honest and truthful here, but he's respectful. You see, he calls Saul Lord. He calls Saul King, and there's no irony in David's voice. He believes that Saul truly is king, and so he respects him as such. And I think this is an example for us. You're being mistreated. Someone you know is being mistreated. It's okay to do something about it. But first, address the person directly. Don't complain to your coworkers about your boss. Go to your boss directly. And second, when you do, be honest, but be respectful. And who knows what may come out of that conversation. Saul repents. The wicked, evil King Saul repents. He says, I'm sorry, David, and I will never do this again. And Saul is true to his word. As I said, this is their last encounter in Scripture. And we may find when we talk to someone it actually goes, up, goes much better than we would ever think. But even if it doesn't, you know what? It doesn't matter. Why? Because by not resorting to entitlement, by not trying to grab for ourselves what, what God is not yet willing to give us, that's the type of behavior that God rewards. And that's what David himself said. Uh, Jump down to verse 23 here. David gives Saul his spear back, and then he says this. This These are the last words he says to Saul in his entire life. Verse 23. He says, The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. You may want to underline those words. 
The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I value your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Verse 25, then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You will go on and do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. And verse 23 is the key. That's why David makes the choices that he does in life. It's because David realizes the greatest reward on this earth is not the reward that comes from man. The greatest reward on this earth is the reward that comes from God. And what is the type of life that God rewards? You see it in verse 23. It's the life of righteousness, which is the life of obedience to God, doing what is right in God's eyes, not being underhanded. And it's the life of faithfulness, the life of wholehearted devotion and commitment to God. In fact, you may want to write the word integrity next to verse 23, because that's really what this is about. It's about living with integrity. In fact, it hit me this past week. David lives his life according to that principle we tell our kids, but I think we forget sometimes as adults. Your 11 or 12-year-old is leaving the the, the field. He or she is devastated because they just lost the championship game. And what do you say to them? You say, listen, son, daughter, It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. What? It's how you play the game that counts. That's not just advice for a 10 or 11-year-old. That's advice for us as well. That's how David lived his life. It doesn't matter whether Saul is king or or David is king. What matters is, is, am I living with integrity? Am I living with righteousness and faithfulness? And at the risk of oversimplification, that's the essence of discipleship. That's the essence of following Jesus. When we stand before Jesus at the end of time, it's not going to matter whether we were the CEO of a company. It's not going to matter if we spend our lives vacuuming carpets. None of that's going to matter. What's going to matter is have we lived with righteousness and faithfulness? Did we put our faith in Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, did we try to do what, what God wanted us to do? Did we live with integrity? That's what matters. And so what does this mean for the unfair situation that you are facing this week? What does this mean for that that, that situation that is going on in your life that you just don't think you deserve to be treated the way that you're treated? Well, let me close with a few summary statements. First thing it means is this, okay? It means, first of all, that life is unfair. (laughs) Can I get an amen to that statement, by the way? (laughs) Life is unfair, okay? Because sin is in this world, we will face unfair circumstances. I have no doubt some of you are the most qualified people at your job, but you're not in charge. I have no doubt that some of your children are the most gifted and talented people to ever walk the face of this earth, okay? (laughs) Mine are. But just because of that, they're not always going to get the breaks. They're not always going to get the jobs, positions, schools, whatever that we think they deserve. The question for the Christian life is not whether or not we're going to avoid unfair circumstances. We can't. We're going to face them. So the question is, how do we respond in the midst of them? So how to respond, summary statement number two. We live with integrity, and we leave the rest up to God. We live with integrity, and we leave the rest up to God, okay? Being mistreated at work does not give us the permission now to be a bad employee. It doesn't give us the permission now to to start talking bad about our boss to our fellow co-workers. We live with integrity. 
doesn't mean we can't defend ourselves, but when we do it, we do it in a God-honoring way. We live with integrity, and then we leave the rest up to God. God is sovereign. Talked about that the week before the election, right? God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is in control. God is perfectly capable of placing us in positions, and he does. And if we're not where we think we deserve to be, we're not entitled to it because we're never entitled to something that we do not have, that we can't get through legitimate means. So Chris, then why am I not where I deserve to be, right? Why are there people who are less qualified than me, who, who, who are running companies, who are doing all these things? Why am I not where I need to be? Well, listen, think I should be. That's another sermon for another time to answer that question. But let me say this. I've learned in 30 years of being a Christian or so that God always does things for a reason. He never acts haphazardly. He always has a purpose for everything. Because I didn't get president of the Interfraternity Council for my senior year, it opened up my schedule to do other things. So I got involved in other activities my senior year of college. Those activities I got involved in got me the job that I got out of college. The job that I got out of college ultimately led me to where I am right now. I would not be here right now if I got what I thought I deserved in college. Do you know how many stories there are like mine? You talk to our youth pastors. Do you know how many stories they have of kids who unfairly got cut from basketball teams? And because of that, they were able to go on a mission trip that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to go on. And on that mission trip, they found their passion. They received their calling from God. Now they're a pastor. Now they're a missionary. Now they're changing the world for the sake of Christ. God always knows what he's doing. And he knows what he's doing in your life. And that's why this truth is such good news. And it's so freeing. Because what it means is as you go to work this week, you don't have to worry about getting involved in the office politics. You don't have to worry about trying to jockey for that great position. All you have to do is show up to work with integrity and, and, and realize that everything else, including your job, it's not in your boss's hands, it's ultimately in God's hands. This is such good news. So we live with integrity and we leave the rest up to God. And third statement is this, and I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I'm, I'm, it's truthful. Third statement is this. Fulfillment in life comes only when you get your selfie out of the center. Fulfillment in life comes only when you get your selfie out of the center. You know what this is doing to us? It's actually making us miserable. It's making us miserable. I read a book this past week that's all about this age of entitlement that we live in. And the author of this book quotes two different groups of studies, several studies in each grouping. The first group of studies says that we are the most entitled generation that has ever been documented. The second group of studies says that we are the most unhappy, depressed, anxiety-laden generation that has ever been documented. And the author links these two things, and you know what? I agree with her. Why? I see it in the life of David. David's not perfect. And we're going to see there are some times when David puts himself and not God at the center, and that's when he suffers the most, and that's when his life falls apart. And that's why. As I close out of this message, I, I want to issue you all a challenge. And this is just a suggestion. This is not, thus saith the Lord, okay? So this is just a suggestion. <laughs> but I don't know if you know this. This Wednesday marks the beginning of Lent. And Lent, if you don't know, is a season in the Christian calendar. It's, it's held every year. It's the six weeks leading up to Easter. It begins with Ash Wednesday, which is this Wednesday, leads up to Easter Sunday. Now, we have never made a big deal of Lent here at this church. 
But kind of the idea, historically, what the church has done during this season of Lent is, is individuals have given up something. They've sacrificed something. It's to remind us of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. Usually it's some sort of food, coffee, something like that. But this past week, I was thinking about this. You guys all know how I feel about social media, right? I don't have very strong feelings about it. I just think it's the incarnation of evil here on this earth. <laughs> and one of the reasons why I don't like social media is because it's the extension of the selfie stick, right? It's the extension of the world where we are at the center. So here's my challenge. What if for Lent, what if, you, what if some of you gave up social media? What if you gave up Instagram? What if you gave up Twitter? What if you gave up Facebook? And for the next six weeks, starting this Wednesday, for the next six weeks leading up to Easter, if instead of all the time that you spent on that, you spent on God. You prayed. You read your Bible. You listened to worship music. You read a devotional. You listened to a sermon, something like that. And you refocused that energy on God. Uh, if you take me up on that challenge, I have no doubt it will be difficult. But I think you'll find that the benefits far outweigh the cost. In fact, I think at the end of those six weeks, you'll actually end up finding yourself a lot happier. And you may even decide to give it up for good. Because we were not made to be at the center. God was. And we're always at our best when we remember that. So that's just a thought. But don't miss the main point of this message, and that's point number two. Live with integrity and leave the rest up to God. You know, a couple weeks ago, I, I gave what, what I hope was a very encouraging message. And that was the message from, from David and Goliath. Where we learned that there is nothing impossible with God on our side. And my hope was that you left that message filled with hope because of, of the big God that we believe in. This message, a little bit different than that message, right? This message, a little bit more challenging. Maybe this message, a little bit more convicting. Now listen, I wish every message could be like the one two weeks ago. Trust me, I get a lot more encouraging emails when I preach a message like that than when I preach a message like this, okay? So I wish every message could be like the one two weeks ago. But you know what? They can't be. In fact, I think this message is just as important as that message two weeks ago. I find this message actually as the complement to the message two weeks ago. Because you know what? God can defeat giants. And we need to believe that. And we need to have that hope. But anybody who's been a Christian for a while knows that sometimes God takes a while to do that. And as we even said in that message, sometimes God chooses not to defeat our giants here on this earth. And so then the question becomes, how do we live in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? That's what this message is about. You see, the temptation when God hasn't defeated our giant yet is I'm going I'm to defeat him on my own. I'm going to do whatever it takes to defeat him on my own because I don't deserve this giant in my path. And so I'm going to do what I deserve. And this message tells us, no, don't do that. Live with integrity. And leave the rest up to God. So as you leave here today, I want you to have both messages in your mind. I want you to leave with hope, and I want you to continue to pray that God will defeat your giant because there's nothing impossible with God on your side. But in the meantime, as you wait for that to happen, I want you to have this message on your mind. I want you to live with integrity, and I want you to leave the rest up to God. As David says, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. My prayer this week is that each of us would be able to say something similar to that in our own lives.
Would you pray with me? Father God, I am just um, amazed, Lord, at how well your, your word, I think, speaks to every situation that we can encounter in this life, Father. Every feeling that we can have, Lord, every temptation that we have, God, it, it, it is just so relevant and powerful to where we are. And God, your word sometimes inspires and gives hope. Sometimes, God, your word convicts and challenges, Father. Sometimes it does both at exactly the same time. And so, God, I, I pray, Lord, that each person leaving here today would receive from this message exactly what you would have for them. For some who, who, who are losing hope, God, I pray that, that you would give them hope, God, that you are working things out and they would see that. For some, God, who are struggling right now in an unfair situation, God, I, I pray that you would let them know that you have everything in your hands, God, and you are working things out according to your will. And for some, God, who have, in the midst of this unfair situation, if they would admit, you know what, I, I haven't been acting the way I should. I haven't been acting with integrity. That, God, your word would challenge and inspire them this week to go about it a little bit differently. And, I, God, I pray for all of us that we would see, in this life even, God, the truth of David's statement. That as we practice righteousness and faithfulness by the power of your Holy Spirit within us, as we practice righteousness and faithfulness, God, we will see your reward, Lord. And I thank you, God, that you are a God that oftentimes rewards us simply for doing what you have asked us to do. And so, God, we, uh, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. And God, we thank you that even when we get it wrong, you're the God of grace who forgives us. And Lord, it's with hearts of gratitude that we, we sing this final song to you. God, I pray that it would be a pleasing offering in your ears. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.